Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today's show 72. I have a wonderful Brooklyn fashion designer joining us today, Carol Miltimore. We've had a couple of amazing experts on the show in the past, uh, the wonderful Claire Press, talking about slow and ethical fashion and... Um, Way back on show number five, I think it was, Hannah Paris, uh, who's the founder of Mighty Good Undies and a an advocate and a half for ethical and slow fashion. And both of those uh, guests were so fantastic and I thought it would be really great to hear uh, a, a, a personal journey of a fashion designer um, sort of making a transition from fast fashion, big brands, mainstream clothes into the world of ethical fashion, how that actually happened both emotionally and um, practically and, uh, and how she's gone about setting up her business. Um, so for our friends in the US today, this is going to be fantastic because it's one of your local designers and I'm going to mix it up with some um, interna- so a, a more international mix of guests this year, which I'm really excited about, some of the people we've got coming up because I think, you know, the, the beauty of the internet means we can reach everybody all around the globe and share ideas and, and see what people are, are doing and thinking and, um, and creating all around the world and I want our show to be a reflection of our listenership and we've got you guys all over the place which is so fantastic so uh i'm really excited to bring you a wonderful local american designer today carol miltimore is her name and uh her brand is called seek collective I think um, it could be really interesting for all of us as we sort of start to think about buying less, buying better, uh, getting more comfortable with really, really taking care of the pieces we do buy and and spending a bit more, you know, the cost of that $10 pair of jeans is paid all the way down the product line and I can't tell you how much better I look after my one pair of mud jeans and my one pair of page jeans. I've got one black and one blue and that's it and I wear them to death and then I get another pair um, if they're really, really broken but I even get like inner leg seams done a couple of times before um, before truly saying goodbye and once you start to trade up and spend a bit more, I find the psychology just means I'm much more careful about that clothing, much more caref- careful with my spatial awareness, you know, bumping into sharp things. And and I never used, you know, for ages I wasn't careful about any of that stuff. And if my jeans broke on the inner seam, um, you know, if they got worn down, I just assumed that that was it, it was done. But now I take them to the alterations lady around the corner and, and she just puts in a new a new seam and it's $15 and I get another six months wear out of them. So, you know, once upon a time I would have completely freaked out at the idea of spending $300 on a pair of jeans. But now I wear that pair of jeans for two, three years many, 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 many times instead of getting a $40, $50 pair of jeans every few months um, because they bend out of shape or, you know, and, and then all of the nasty stuff that goes on with the dyes that are used so often and, and all sorts. So I think the awakening happens and, and trading up to um, better clothes made by people who are paid fairly, made with uh, organic or natural textiles, in closed loop water systems, uh, you know, and uh, uh, I just think it's, 
again, it's like you, you get that thing and you're really proud of it and you really thought about whether you needed it or didn't need it because you're spending a bit more. And the whole level of consciousness around a clothing in general uh, is raised big time. And, um, and then, of course, there's, you know, we've talked many times about things that you can do to not have to buy new clothes at all and access op shops and, and secondhand designer stores. And, but sometimes you just want something new and, and lovely and, um, and trading up is it's a really interesting psychological experience. So uh, I'd be so keen to hear whether anyone's experienced that themselves. Please sh- always feel free to share your comments in our um, comment section under the show notes. Uh, because, you know, let's get a conversation going. Let's see how everybody is is navigating this. So my chat with Carol is fabulous and I'm going to get to that in just a second, but you have one more week to make the most of the Goodness Me Box promotion. Goodness Me Box are the leading healthy sampling box for all sorts of gorgeous foods, brands, single ingredients and pre-made products as well. Uh, And while I know in the low-tox life, we always talk about that that sliding scale of products on one end and and produce on the other and how we're always moving towards produce. So I don't want you to think that our focus has shifted there or anything, but at the end of the day, so many people in our audience um, need access to products that they know they can trust when it comes to their peanut butter that they buy or, you know, so still really simple, beautiful, additive-free, preservative-free things, not overly processed. You understand every ingredient in there. Um, and you know, the best version of products that there is, if you know what I mean. So I think goodness me box does a great job to help champion small businesses starting up who need to get their products known, their ethical practices. Uh, Peter is staunchly against GMOs. So there is a non-GMO promise there. Um, and, and it's just really beautiful to explore. I've discovered fantastic products through the boxes that I've received. And if you're starting your subscription now, which by the way, can go for as long or as short as you want it to go, uh, you'll have the beautiful Valentine's box that's been curated by Lorna Jane just around the corner because you'll be getting your February box as your first box. So I can't wait to see what's in there and I hope you enjoy it. So it's $10 off your first box. Your subscription can be one month, two months, three years. It doesn't matter. Um, you're not pressured into sticking around uh, and uh, and it's just great to explore. And so with your first box being only $15 for six to eight, um, either full-sized or premium-sized products, then, you know, it's worth it. I've received a full-size turmeric in there that alone was worth $12 if I had bought it at my organic shop and the peanut butter, which would have been $8. So just two of the items were already worth 20 let alone everything else that was in there. So it is really good value and I hope you make the most of it. Lowtox is your code. Goodnessmebox.com is the website, but you have all the details on the show notes as well. Enjoy my chat with Carol. Hey, Carol, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm really great. It's awesome to have you on the show. We've heard from uh, a couple of great fashion activists over the last couple of years, but I'm really keen to journey a little bit into the perspective of a designer who's on the front line dealing with 
uh, all of the different um, aspects of building a sustainable ethical fashion brand as you are. So let's start. I'd love to just uh, hear from you a little bit more about how fashion became the thing that you moved into career-wise first. Yeah, uh, let's see. It was something that I was always, I was always probably into it since I was a child. Um, art ultimately was something I was always involved in. My mom's an artist and, and that was very encouraging. And then I took to the idea of clothing pretty early on. Uh, and, and it was even through middle school, high school, I was always sort of sketching and I was really lucky to be able to, we were friends with some designers based in New York city. So I would go and spend time in the studio there. And I would spend time in the fabric rooms with those designers. So I was very, I was exposed to it also at a young age. Uh, so it was always, it was always there and it's it, some, in some sense feels cliche, but, <laughs> um, it was, I was sort of on this track. Mm. Yeah. And did you study fashion formally at university or was it something you then just moved straight into after school? I, I studied, I went to Parsons School of Design in New York City and I studied, uh, when you do Parsons, the first year is an all around design art education. And then after that, you choose your major and I chose apparel. Uh, I did a one year abroad in Paris and I, that was really informative for me in the sense that it, it became, expanded my horizons more into textiles. And I was able to take a lot of different textile courses while I was studying in Paris. So I think that got me much more into a broader sense of, of the idea of fashion when I was there. Cool. And which designers did you work with? Uh, well, let's see. When I was still, uh, before I studied abroad and I was still in college, I did an internship with Michael Kors. And then when I was in Paris, I uh, worked with the couture designer and Valerie Hash. And then after that, I did more, um, more corporate, I guess you could say, is uh, Converse and Calvin Klein jeans, Armani Exchange. Uh, so I, it sort of gave me a wide range of sort of high-end designer, couture designer to more of a mass market um, American brand. Yeah, cool. Um, and like through that time that you were gaining all this experience, working for all these different brands, were you already thinking sustainability or was there like a moment that hit you, oh my gosh, you know, we're making all this stuff and where does it come from and what are these dyes and like did you have a bit of a a crisis moment? I know I would have. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to pin down when, the, when if there was a specific moment. I know there was, a, uh, there was always an interest for me. There's always been a background interest in sustainability and environmentalism. Uh, in high school, I think I wrote my thesis on the idea of Buddhism applying to all mankind because it just talks about taking care of the planet because we're all mm. sharing it. So I think that was always something that was a part of who I am as a person. And I, I'm, I think, though, as I was working in the industry, it probably wasn't until a couple of years into it that I started getting reading, you know, you start reading more and more. And so the more you read and the more you hear about how things are made and, and what's going on, um, I think it started to affect me a lot, a lot more, uh, because I started just delving into, to kind of anything I could research wise of what was going on. And, and it was a hard pill to swallow in some respect, because, uh, while designing something that was being sold at say target, 
um, and pro- not necessarily produced in the most environmentally, socially responsible ways, um, you know, that was hard. So I think it was always, I always wanted, I wanted to get all my, all of the research down and, and then, um, before I then made my move into, to exploring more sustainable social, um, socially responsible ways to produce. Yeah. Cool. And, um, was it like, like, I'm just interested in the the struggle because obviously you want to make beautiful things as a designer. <laughs> um, it's almost like a, a a cook who kind of hasn't realized quite how important the seasons are. It's like, I want to make my pear tart now and I want it to look like this, like right in the middle of summer where there's no pears. <laughs> that kind of a, a thing. Did you grapple with that as a fashion designer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's even I think I grapple with it to some extent now, mm. right? Because I think uh, I I have certain parameters in which I can and can't create uh, to some extent, because if I'm doing, say, natural dyes, what how many what kind of colors and um, or even with certain printing, I can't print certain times or dye certain times of the year because of the monsoon season. So there, you know, and so maybe, and I look and I think, oh, it would be really much easier to be able to just sort of (laughs) um, do something to kind of relate it to the food industry out of season, right? But um, I then I think I think all artists and designers have we all have parameters, and and you have to they're either sort of uh, you make them yourself or they're set by the conditions or the materials or what have you. So we all have them. Uh, and I think in some ways it makes you more creative because you have to come up with different solutions totally and you have to think a little bit more agree. outside of the box. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I had to go gluten-free for health reasons, it was about oh, 13, 12, 13 years ago now. And I, uh, you know, I could barely roast a chicken without wondering how it was going to turn out. Uh, you know, I really <laughs> was just not a great cook back then. But this sentence, if you like, of being made to go gluten-free, being given this parameter made me have to question everything uh, and then it made me a great cook because Mm -hmm. I had these parameters but I wanted deliciousness so I had to figure out how to make everything delicious uh, without that thing that I couldn't use. And I guess your equivalent would be like a – a fuchsia viscose or, you know, just like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, you can't use that. So what could you create if you could only use these things? I think it's a really interesting thing that people grapple with across sustainability and health journeys in general, because we, we have to set parameters once we've realized just how important our day-to-day decisions are on our health impact and on the planet's impact. And then, like you say, it definitely, if you choose to do it positively, it definitely makes you more creative. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think having a business and just life in general, it really forces you to, to just be a problem solver. And, and I think that makes me kind of interesting. You come up with things come, come happen that you never expected or you could have never planned for. Mm, totally. Oh, I like it. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, so you have this realization, you start doing all your research. Is it at that point that you decided I'm going to India? Like, was it a, <laughs> was it a rebellion against everything and you just needed to kind of regroup somewhere and, and go on an exploratory kind of journey for yourself? Uh, I think, well, India would always, was always there. And in some respect, I think some of my friends probably would laugh at me or did laugh at me when I finally did go because it was something I kept talking about wanting a place I wanted to go to for many years. 
and it, but it was really, um, scary for me. And I think I wanted to go and then I start, but then you sort of start working and it's harder to do a big journey. And then you feel like you need to have a reason or you need to have someone to go with you or something. And I think I kept waiting for the right moment. And then as I was doing all this research and as I started sort of honing in on all this, uh, and also feeling like I needed to take a step back, uh, and explore and, Meanwhile, I was taking textile classes so I could get even a better understanding because uh, I knew eventually I'd want to work with some sort of artisan group somewhere in the world. So I was taking weaving classes, natural dyeing classes, print making classes on the side um, after hours of working, you know, a nine to five, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then meanwhile, always thinking, I really want to go to India. I really want to go to India. <laughs> so I ended up and I kind of felt like I needed a reason so I ended up applying for an artist residency, so kind of appeasing my my painting background and went and got accepted to do a one-month painting residency there uh, outside in, a, in Gujarat, which is a state below Rajasthan uh, in the northwest of India. Uh, and so I went and I bought a one-way ticket and I kind of knew and I'd done some research. So I kind of picked out some different artists and groups I wanted to meet with eventually, but knew I wanted to also just go on a journey and uh, did that kind of thing that some people do. So I got over there with a backpack uh, and one-way ticket, and I spent several months there kind of wandering around the country and meeting, you know, having certain adventures or I guess a lot of misadventures, and then also meeting with natural dyers and uh, block printers and weavers uh, and really gathering a lot of that intel and experiences. Amazing. And uh, when when you were there, was that when you started to think, I'm going to do my own thing? A little bit. It was all, it all kind of how, what it is now and what, what I was thinking then, it's really funny for me to look back at. I don't think I anticipated it becoming almost what it is in some respect. I think when I first began, it, it was more of I met with some printmakers who were using natural dyers and I thought, oh, this is really, this is really cool. And and the meanwhile, the first month, week I was there, I stayed with a friend's family in Delhi, and um, her sister gifted me a pair of pants for my journey after I left their home, mm. and it was a pair of silk crepe pants, and I thought, well, these these are the most comfortable things I could ever possibly wear, uh, and then later on, when I started meeting printers and dyers, I, and then I kind of, as the journey went on, I thought, well, what if I, and I always loved print and, dye, and natural dye, so I thought, well, wouldn't it it'd be kind of cool to dye or uh or print silk crepe and then make pants out of them uh so then it was more of an exploration at the beginning of like oh I wonder what this would be like and at the same time fundamentally I think I was really interested in you know looking at the industry and seeing that it's an industry that really produces out of um exploitation I guess you could say and I wanted to see you could definitely say that (laughs) (laughs) the idea for me was can I produce through empowering instead and still create a project that's um, relevant and modern and, and high quality and not so kind of using techniques that are maybe traditionally associated to kind of maybe a hippy dippy 70s, 60s era craftsy and make it elevate it uh, and produce through empowering. So I think it was all, it was all sort of a, it was really an exploration in every sense of the word. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I really think you've successfully done that. Uh, the Australian listeners today are going to be upset because you probably don't ship here, but our American listeners are going to be very excited. 
Um, because I have international shipping. Don't worry, oh, you everyone do. in Australia. Oh, oh, yeah. oh that's good. Um, because, like, you know, we're always talking about buy less clothes and buy better and trade up. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it might make some people feel really uncomfortable to spend two to $400 on a clothing item. And frankly, for some people, it's just going to be out of budget at this point in time. Mm-hmm. But for the people who are thinking, oh, I, maybe I could stretch that far. It's like if you bought one pair of pants this season instead of four crappy mm-hmm. ones where you don't know how they're made or with what kind of dyes and um, or whether the factory workers are being paid well, you know, all the questions that we ask ourselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, you do that work and you produce something really where everybody is treated fairly through the whole, whole process and no one's poisoned, which is always such a bonus. <laughs> Um, it really, it really is. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Uh, so you know, I can't, I can't count on two hands how many recalls I've seen over the last few years about, um, you know, jeans from say a huge mass market ten dollar jeans kind of retailer um, that ends up having to recall because it turns out one of the dyes is poisonous. And if you think about how hot you get in a pair of jeans and that dye going straight onto your skin, like it's really terrifying, isn't it? Um, it is. Our skin is our largest organ. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> you know, it's... so how do they make these beautiful? Because I'm just scrolling through your um, website and making an imaginary wish list right now. <laughs> I love the Savista pant is so beautiful. That looks so comfy. Um, oh, I think it is. It's very popular. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I've had a friend describe it as a skirt you can be inappropriate in. So I really have always taken to that description of it. Oh, I love it. That's fab. Um, and the, the Renee romper, the whole crepe romper, that looks beautiful. Pop a jacket on and you feel super special, I think, in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so with these, I mean, the, all the colors I'm seeing are really beautiful, natural uh, kind of tones. What do they use to produce these natural dyes, and how does it differ from what we were talking about before—the nasty stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, well, different things. It's uh, the the peop- the group I work with is really for for the natural dyeing that I do is really interesting, and I, they're I just really adore them. And they they're in they're in South India, sort of inland, and in a more of a jungle kind of crop area and uh the the founder is a molecular biologist so he really approaches things as a, as a scientist which i really appreciate and he ended up hiring uh, people so some of the head um people there that are in charge of creating the colors used to do colors for say like makeup companies or uh more indu- industrial dyes so they kind of take their their knowledge from doing it with uh, toxic, more toxic chemicals or what have you, and now apply it to natural natural dyes. And a lot of the people doing the actual dye work used to work at a dye facility outside of Mumbai, and were having uh, historically really huge health issues mm. because of because of that. And now and now they don't obviously don't at all. It's it's in a beautiful area. They all the water that's used is um, cleaned and recycled and then waters the crops surrounding that land that then f- feeds that area, that community. So it's a really a great system oh, uh, and they so use different things. Does that mean they've managed to do a closed loop system when it comes to the water? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really wonderful and it's really inspiring uh, and, and it, I, it's one of my favorite places to spend time in every year. Uh, but it's you know there's roots you can use from different plants, leaves, flowers, 
uh, insects on occasion, like uh, kind of like almost they're, they're very tiny and dried up uh, and every and but my favorite one is the dye the dye for the black. Uh, black is a historically kind of very toxic dye if you're mm. doing it chemically, and uh, the way we do it is. Uh, you have to, if you take iron metal and you ferment it for a month with, um, it's almost like, um, a solid molasses. So a sugary oh, wow. material, uh, and then you ferment that together in water for a month and then you dye the fabric first with, uh, I forget, I'm having a moment, but it's a flower. It's a small uh, yellow flower mm-hmm. and it's dried and ground up. So you dye the fabric first with the yellow flour and then and then dye it with that uh liquid that you fermented with the iron and the sugar and the water and it turns black so if you dyed it with just the fermented fab um liquid first nothing it would it looks like nothing um it only turns black once it's put on the fabric that's already been dyed with the yellow flour so it sort of really feels like very magical oh wow yeah it sounds magical So it's you know there's all different ways to to do it naturally, and I think there are also so the mordant is uh, what you use to fix the dye with the with the black uh, that's that's all that's used. It's then it's fixed, but um, with some of the other ones you need to fix it with sort of a maybe like a vinegar or something. You know, and you have to be careful. Even natural dyes sometimes the mordants can be not everyone uses natural safe mordants. So what is I mean, a mordant? A of, just for people who don't know. The, the mordant is going to be some sort of uh, ingredient that then fixes the color onto the fabric. Ah, okay. So mm-hmm. in French, the word mordant, mordant, is like biting. So isn't that mm-hmm. interesting? It's like, you know, it yeah. yeah, cool. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, and even, even say with the block printing that we do, uh, we now work with a group that uh, not all of the the print, the printing is not always done with, uh, natural dyes, but the dyes they do use are, are not toxic, uh, chemicals. And then that's the, where I am printing. They also have a closed loop system. So all the water is gathered clean through this. And, uh, they just created a brand new German water treatment facility and all the water is cleaned and then reused again. And any of the sort of leftover sludge is then used um, as fuel. So it's 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 every kind of everywhere I'm going, I'm really trying to make sure that there's a there's a closed loop system. And and even if there isn't a natural dye being used, and the water is not being put out into the environment, uh, it's it's being treated and then reused. Right. Yeah. And was it hard for you to kind of gather all of these supplies? How long did that take? Oh gosh, uh, it's taken several years, and it's been and it doesn't an, end an, either. I'd imagine. No, yeah. it doesn't end. It's been an ongoing, an ongoing process of meeting with different uh, suppliers. Um, you know, the I think right now I'm with a group that I real different groups of people that I really I really love working with, and it, but it's taken several years to get to get to this point. And let's see, I've been in maybe six hospitals in India over the years, so a lot I've. Blood, sweat, and tears is a real is a real thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, hospitals! How did you end up in hospital? Oh, I've I'm very good at getting into trouble, <laughs> whether it's dehydration or um, food poisoning or a motorcycle accident. Uh, you name it, I've I've probably done it. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're still here producing beautiful clothes. That sounds a bit dramatic. But, you know, anything for your art, right? When you're an artist. Exactly. (laughs) 
Um, and like, so I'm curious to know how you then went from discovering all these amazing people to building your fashion brand. And I mean, you know, New York is a tough city. Was it because you had some great connections to start with? How did you then go about building it? It's been a slow, it's been a slow build and I would say I'm still working on it. Mm. Uh, when I began, I wouldn't say I started with good connections. I, I started it as the first collection was a very small little capsule collection. Again, that was sort of during the experimental phase. And I thought, all right, I'll do this. Let's see what happens. Uh, and I did some, a lot of, I kind of reached out to people, friends, their friends, family, their, their friends and, and got orders and then I started going, I just sort of cold called or emailed and often just showed up to stores, sometimes with a suitcase. So I really, uh, it was really a slow start, kind of the old, the old fashioned way to some extent. Yeah. And over time, have you built a bit of an online community that helps you sell direct to people? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I like, I, I really appreciate both. There's, I love I have wholesalers with certain stores I sell with and I love the owners and I really enjoy working with them. And I, but I also love work, having the kind of communication directly with the consumer and having that connection is really special, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because they're the people who tell you what they want, what they're inspired by. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'd imagine. And so what does life look like for you now? Are you um, New York based permanently or do you still spend some time in India? Uh, I think everyone's been calling me semi-nomadic these days. I'm, I have, I think I've been in New York maybe four or five months out of the year this year and the year's almost over. It's been, I'm in India at least twice a year, um, usually for a month at a time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm there a lot. Uh, and I toy, I, I try to do uh, some pop-up shops, so I'll travel and, and do that, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, I love New York, but I also love California. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm permanently anywhere necessarily. Oh, how interesting. And, you know, I think it's just all about finding a life that suits you. And, you know, it's, um, it's always a challenge. You always think you're not allowed to live that way, you know, like when you're growing up, you think, no, I've got to be based somewhere and I have to be responsible and there's going to be kids soon and all the things. But, you know, mm -hmm. why not? Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my home, my apartment's in Brooklyn. So, and it is sort of my, it is sort of my sanctuary. So I do love coming and just being, being here just because it's my space. But uh, yeah, I think, you can, you, it is very possible. I, it's true. I, it always seemed un, unreachable or unrealistic, but it, I think it is possible. More and more people can work remotely or uh, I think it allows a lot more flexibility. I agree. I think it's a good time to be around. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, breaking the rules doesn't feel so taboo anymore. It just, it's just <laughs> all about creating a life that you love. Um, yeah. And so in terms of fashion itself, like something I love about looking at your collection, it, it instantly feels like the mind is quietened, you don't need so many things, um, and you could just kind of live in beautiful basics that have like little touches of, of um, fun and cute and cheeky and um, really feminine clothes. Uh, but a lot of us out there struggle and, and have huge closets full of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I would love your advice uh, for everybody um, 
on how to go about starting to simplify and not feel so tied to having to go to the big shopping chains and see what's mm-hmm. in, you know, because they're dropping new clothes fortnightly these days. It's crazy. Oh, it's it's wild. It's wild how, how quickly people are dropping clothes all the time now. Yeah, and I feel like there's, there's two parts to this. There's the part of the psychology of our culture making us this way now where we feel that we need to buy something new every two weeks, which is nuts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our mm-hmm. grandparents would just be so shocked by that concept. Um, yes. So it's happened super quick. But nevertheless, that's where we are. So we kind of almost need to undo a psychological thing of needing new stuff all the time, but also skill up on how to build a wardrobe that is more simple yet allows us to feel like we're expressing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because I, I definitely like the idea of, I think, ultimately clothes should be an expression. They should make you feel happy that day, whatever you're putting on and feel good, feel comfortable, feel yourself. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful opportunity we all have every day. And it's probably one reason I really love clothing, that idea of self-expression. But I the way, the way I approach it, I suppose, is really the way I can speak to it, which for me is not buying into sort of this idea of trend of what's in or what color or what print is in. And in each season, I usually get, I, I mean, right now I, I only wear usually seek or I wear um, vintage or I have a lot of friends that are also designers and I will support them and get their clothes as well. And that way I also know where they're producing, how they're producing. So it's, it's also responsible. But uh, you know, I like to, I get, I like to get one or two special things from a designer and I have a couple of things from seek each season. And then I sort of rotate those all season. And then I always make sure that it's not so much about trend. It's okay. Now, can I wear Can I bring those into the future, into the next season? And I think, I think ultimately now it really is seasonless dressing, I, you know, for better, or for worse, I guess there's the element of global warming, but I think it allows you to layer and and play around with things in a way that doesn't have to be so strict. Uh, and I think for that reason, then you don't need to buy so much every season. You really can just buy a couple nice pieces that make you feel happy um, and comfortable and uh, serve your life in a utilitarian way. And I, I, I that and looking into. I think now there's a big, you know, I think there's a big kit phrase with mindfully made and everyone's sort of starting to kind of get on board with this idea, um, with trying to be responsible, uh, in fashion. But I think it's a really, you had referenced the food industry earlier and I always like to reference it actually in relation to fashion as a matter of fact. And in this respect, I think it's, it's interesting because when the whole organic movement came out and people started getting into that, with food and people started writing, um, it, now, uh, that something instead of being organic, it would say all natural. And then sort of oh, consumers yeah. would think, Oh, all natural. That must mean that it's, you know, responsibly made or organic or something. And it doesn't all natural is really, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm. So I think as consumers, it's, it's about taking more time to do a little bit more research and not just take someone's word for it. Uh, if, if they say mindfully made or responsibly made or eco really inquire and try to do your research of, of what do they mean by that? Cause it can mean a lot of different things and there's a lot of different ways you can approach it, but not all of them are necessarily truly that, truly that. 
I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, no, so no. You don't need to beat me... around the bush with with low-tox people. <laughs> we, we totally <laughs> you get know, it. I, yeah. I mean, I know I've done it. I've done it with a lot of aspects of my life, even my makeup I went through. And I now I, you know, it, it takes a little bit more time. But then once you know, then you know. And then, and then it, uh, it's, and then, you know, uh, it's more, I guess you, I feel more passionate than about who I am buying from. Oh, absolutely. The connection's so much deeper and you're so much prouder of what you have and you own because you, you worked hard to decide what you were going to get in the first place instead of that throwaway mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. of just consuming um, mindlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think people try to, I, it's interesting, people kind of, I was just talking um, to a friend about this idea that people will brag about how cheap something is and then how many they could get of them. And I think that, well, that's just the wrong, I think we need to re kind of re we look at things and, and set different parameters of, of how we want um, to be talking about what we're wearing. Absolutely. And also I love that you brought up that point because um, we haven't really talked about it on the show before and it's such a massive one. I, I was just at a um, kid's party a few weeks ago and the um, the parent who, you know, it's never a judgment thing. Everyone's at where they're at with the information they have to operate in their life at that point in time. And, you know, hopefully she will go on a bit of a journey and realise um, that plastic is, is not so great, especially when it's going to be single use. But um, she had got all this party wear and was like, can you believe all of this was only 10 bucks? And I was so excited and I, I grabbed it all because I just thought it would make today so much easier. And, and yes, it's, it is such a, 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 again, it's like a psychological thing that's got into our heads about how things are better because they're cheaper when actually that is, there is a cost and there is always a cost behind that cheapness, whether it's an environmental one, a human one, a human rights one, there mm-hmm. is always a cost on cheap. And the same Absolutely. goes with fashion. So, um in terms of like that utilitarian, what are your favorite couple of pieces that you think, um, you know, it doesn't even have to necessarily be from the seat collection, but, um, you know, that you think are just like essential and that the last long and, um, and that is, is worth like as a starting point trading up from today. Oh, that's a good question. Sorry, I'm totally um, springing this one on you too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm now I'm just thinking about it. Well, I know, I, again, this is really, I, I think fashion is really, it's very personal, right? It's it's a really, an, and then ultimately it's an emotional buy. I think when people purchase something mm. often, it's uh, nowadays, right, we're not really in any dire need of, of something for survival. So I think now when we buy, it's really, it's much more an emotional purchase, but uh, when I, so when I think about what I really, for me, what I think of essentials, um, let's say I, I love, um, I love silk personally. I think there's, I know there's some debate, I guess, suppose if you're vegan and, uh, but it is, it is a really strong material that is biodegradable. Uh, and, and I think the idea of materials is a really complex, it's a very complex situation. Uh, and so you just, you do the best you can. And I think as far as, so I love I love the material for a lot of different reasons. Um, it's something that you can dress up and dress down. So you can wear it with you can wear a silk top with a pair of jeans on the weekend, and you can pair it with a nice pair of slacks or skirt or what have you, and go to work or for a party. So I think some sort of silk top, whether it's in a solid and or like some sort of print, is always something 
I, I can't live without personally. Yeah. Um, and how do we treat silk when we're washing it and, um, and caring well, for it? You know, I think it depends on the silk. So uh, for my, for seek, I can speak to, I use a, a silk crepe and the way it's treated already before, you know, to get the dye and get the printing is it's, it's washed pretty heavily. So I, I personally put mine in cold, gentle cycle and I always use eco friendly detergents and then I just line dry it and then steam it. So mm-hmm. it's really, um, I, I think it, I think people think of silk as something very precious and I think it's, it doesn't have to be, yeah. uh, but that's how I kind of think of everything in life. It, everything, you should have it to use it and wear it and, and nothing should be so precious that you don't just treat it like a, something to use every day and enjoy every day. Yeah. Uh, and so isn't it interesting that we, we think that silk is something, oh no, I can't get anything in silk because it's going to be too fragile. And, you know, there you are saying we can chuck it in the wash. How good's that? I mean, yeah, I put yeah. mine in just like a cold gentle cycle with mm. the eco detergent and line dry. It's, it's all I do. Um, you know, and again, I have a friend that just had a baby and she wrote me saying that she loves wearing her like silk top and she's, and cause it made her feel comfortable and it was loose and breathable, but also, made her feel good about her body the time where it was, you know, she was coming back from just having a baby. And so there you go. You, you could just be a mom at, at home and, and still wear silk every day and feel great and not have it be some precious material. It just makes you happy and comfortable. Yeah. So, um, so good. I don't know. I think jeans, like vintage jeans. I love, um, I love, I love kind of a dress that you can do different ways, like a slip dress. You can layer under it, you can lay over it. Um, I think a lot of things are really versatile. I like the idea of using things that can can be worn. Uh, you can either dress it up or dress it down. And I think that's sort of the world we live in now anyways of how we're all operating. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. And another concept um, I'm a big fan of is thinking about points in your life that you can package up to being like a uniform. So for mm-hmm. me, for example, I give a lot of talks and so I have my speaker dress and I literally will wear that thing until it dies uh, <laughs> and I wear only that. So people kind of start to get used to seeing me in this on social or whatever over and over again and it it's the thing and, you know, hopefully that just helps you know, a small amount of women, even if it helps one woman realize it's not a shameful thing to wear the same thing more than once. Um, oh my gosh, no. I, I like yeah. to just choose a couple pieces and wear them over and over again every day for the season. Yeah, just for that's right. couple months. Yeah. And it is so much less stressful to wear a uniform. You just put something on that you love every day or every time you speak. Or I have, I even have these two outfits that I wear to what I call posh meetings. So <laughs> they're like my two things that I wear if I have to feel like I'm in, a, you know, I'm powerful and confident mm-hmm. and and I just know that I go straight to those things and that's how they make me feel. So I think for me that's how I've managed to dramatically reduce the amount of items in my wardrobe to just mm-hmm. to thinking about things in context of what I would use them for and just using them over and over again for those purposes. Um, because, yeah. 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 It's such an interesting. You know, thinking about how I love that about clothes. Like how does it really, you know, if you sit and just think how does this make me feel when I wear it, I mm. think is really one way to really reduce also. Yeah, and if it doesn't make you feel anything, then it's probably just a cheap, badly made, badly sourced basic that really just, you know, is it's not even worth being in our wardrobe. So it's time to start thinking about 
that that beautiful Marie Kondo um, spirit, I guess, of is it useful, is it beautiful, do I love mm-hmm. having this in my house? Um, imagine mm-hmm. if we all decided to commit to having closets like that. That would be, I think that would be a really interesting transition for people. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like maybe let's make a bit of a challenge for everybody this week and I know it's the middle of December so that's not always a great time to be reorganising your house but even to just look at your wardrobe and and make a list of things you're going to stop buying because you don't find them useful or beautiful and you find you often churn through them because they're poor quality or whatever and um, and to perhaps share what you found out about yourself and the clothes that you've been buying in the comments of today's show notes. I think that'd be really interesting to just start raising that awareness and um, and start being proud of the things that we choose to buy, maybe saving up a little bit longer and getting something really special in a beautiful natural fabric. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of work we can all do in this area, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Well, life is a process. Oh, it totally <laughs> it? is. And you never arrive. I think that's the most important thing. It's never black and white and you never mm-hmm. arrive. So don't stress yourself out about not being perfect or good enough or, you know, I think um, we, we can all be way too hard on ourselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on the show, Carol. It's been absolutely lovely uh, looking into what it's been like for you as a designer to make that transition from the big mega brands into having a beautiful, uh, gorgeous collection of your own with Seek Collective. And we'll obviously have all of those details for everybody in the show notes and when I come to New York next year we will have to catch up I'd love to oh yes mm. thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure yeah uh, and I really appreciate it oh you're so welcome good luck with everything yes and keep me keep me posted on your New York City trip oh shall do shall do I hope you enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. And before I sign off, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you that writes a review or leaves a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to the show. We appreciate it so much. It's the best way you can say thank you because it helps us stay visible and it helps people who haven't listened to the show before but who might come across it in a search think, "Mm, I might give that a go. So I appreciate that and I'm wishing you the best week. Until next week, you can catch us on lowtoxlife.com. And if you want to check out those show notes, remember to put forward slash podcast and it'll take you straight there. Otherwise, I'll also see you on Instagram. I'm always posting there. It's a little bit more uh, personal and a look at sort of how I eat and what I do and my dad's pictures of blossoms and whatever else is going on. And that's at Lowtox Life. Have a great week and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.